0: Welcome to the Criswell College Chapel podcast. Through each semester, the entire campus gathers for worship through song and a biblical, challenging, and encouraging message. Speakers include pastors, professors, and local business and nonprofit leaders. At Criswell, we believe spiritual life is vital for everyone. And that is why Criswell's goal in chapel services is to emphasize loving the Lord with all our heart, all our mind, and all our strength. We make leaders who are ambassadors, cultivators, peacemakers, problem solvers, and professionals. While chapel services are tailored to students, we are encouraged by all our guest speakers by knowing that the practicality of what is being spoken is for everyone. To learn more about Criswell College, visit Criswell.edu. Thank you for joining us. Today we will be hearing from Dr. Nick Pitts. Nick Pitts serves as the Director of Communications at Atmos Energy, joining the team in November of 2019. He previously served as the Executive Director for the Institute on Global Engagement at Dallas Baptist University. In that role, he penned op-eds for publications such as the Philadelphia Inquirer and the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. He also co-hosted a weekly radio show and provided commentary on various cable news outlets concerning current issues. In 2021, the Dallas chapter of the Public Relations Society of America named him one of the top 40 under 40. Originally from Tennessee, Nick graduated with a PhD from Dallas Baptist University in 2016. He is involved with various organizations here in Dallas, including serving on the boards of Traffic 911, the Hope Center, and Dallas Christian Leadership Prayer Breakfast. Without further ado, Dr. Nick Pitts.
1: Hey, how are y'all? You good? Well, cool. Uh, well, uh, before, I, before I begin, I, I would be remiss if I didn't say thank you to your vice president, Luis Juarez, a dear friend, just absolute rock star. It makes me, he's one of those friends that makes you want to love Jesus more every time you're around him. Uh, uh, like what the writer uh, said in Acts, what, what Luke said, uh, it, you can be around him and you take note because he's been with Jesus and dear friend, and I'm just entirely grateful for him, but also question his decision-making skills that he chooses to hang out with me. I am a guy that is a risk taker to say the very least. Um, I was uh, When I was growing up, I wanted to play paintball without a mask. I swam 45 minutes less after I got through eating. I ran with scissors a couple of times, but perhaps the greatest risk that I ever took was jumping out of a perfectly good airplane. Me and about four of my college buddies decided, because you know college students were just typically were like the uh, best decision makers essentially, Um, I, I uh, we decided that we were going to go and uh, decide to jump out of a perfectly good airplane. And one of the unique things that happened when we jumped out of this perfectly good airplane is that we decide: Do we need to? Do we? Need- Okay, Um, one of the things that we decided that we were going to do is we had to make our way down to Georgia because the devil didn't just go down to Georgia. Some Tennesseans went down to Georgia to jump out of an airplane. We realized on that night that potentially could be our very last meal. And so, what did we do for our very last meal? That's a significant question to think about. What would be your last meal? One of the things that we decided was god a reminder of God's goodness and grace was chips and queso in a very bleak world. So we had chips and queso uh, at this place. And so we woke up the next morning and come to find out as we're going through our training seminars and we're working tirelessly through the day to be able to figure out how to jump out of this perfectly good airplane. One of the things that we found out as we made our way up in the aircraft is that one of my friends had had never flown in an airplane before that was going to be jumping out. So to say that he was a little trepidatious would be an understatement. But it's interesting, though, as soon as we got into this airplane, I want you to know that this was the best airplane that was built in 1967. It was an absolute stunner uh, of a beaut. And so as we're going up in this airplane, what I'm finding out is my anxiety and my fear is also going up as well. It doesn't help that I'm strapped to some other guy that's invading my personal space uh, and decency in any type of way. But as I'm making my way up into the air, I'm thinking to myself, what in the world am I thinking? I am 21 years old, I've got so much to live for, this is completely stupid. I don't know what I'm doing, and so I figured since I had bought the trip up, I can also take the trip down as well. It just seems right if I'm buying on this airplane, but eventually the time comes, and what happens is the fears that I had quickly evaporate because the excitement and the pride of wanting to be the first one out of the plane, and so eventually they open up the door, and there we are 13,000 feet in the air, and then they say, who wants to go first, and immediately I spring up only to realize I'm still strapped to this person. And I go back down. And then I whisper to him, let's go. And so we waddle up together to this this door, very cool looking, waddle up to the door. And I don't know if you've ever jumped out of a plane, but it's kind of crazy. And so he kicks both of my feet to both sides of the bottom parts of the door. He non-gently puts my hands up on the top part of the door. And here I am, very exposed and vulnerable, to say the very least right now, looking out this plane that's going anywhere from 100 to 200 miles an hour at about 13,000 square feet. And I'm about to do this thing and jump out of this plane. And then he begins a gentle countdown of 5, 4, Three, we jump. Um, (laughs) And then I would like to say that I was uh, screaming certain things that would not be appropriate in a venue such as this. I was screaming, not like a man in this particular instance either. I was spinning completely out of control, wondering what in the world is doing. Up was down, down was up. My face was all contorted. I had no clue what was going on. And isn't that exactly what it seems like the political discourse of 20? 2022 is. (laughs) It is absolutely crazy what's happening right now. Up is down, down is up. You can't mention on either side of the aisle right now your stance on certain issues without being worried that you are going to offend the other person. We are racking up trillions upon trillions of dollars of debt, and that's not just limited to one particular party. Interestingly enough, there was a survey that came out in 2016, that found that 14% of friends after the 2016 election lost a friendship because of the election. Sadly, one in six Americans left their church because of the direction of the 2016 election and what was said from the pulpit. Candidly, I don't care what side of the aisle you're on. The fact that you're leaving a church because of politics sadden us. Up is down, down is up, we're jumping into this space. So what do we need to do? How are we to approach this as a Christian? Well I decided uh, to do my PhD research on the two things you're not supposed to talk about in political and uh, personal life which is religion and politics. It was always captivated as a young Tennessean by John F. Kennedy and his interaction in the political uh, square. He wasn't the first Catholic to run for the president. He was the first one to win the presidency. The first Catholic to run for president was a guy named Al Smith out of New York, affectionately known as Alcoholic Smith. He was was not necessarily the, the greatest foot forward for Catholics during that 1928 time. But fast forward to John F. Kennedy, and what was so fascinating about what John F. Kennedy did when he approached the public square is he he had this way of being able to interact with individuals that saw them for the as they are, and then morphed his personality to be that that they wanted him to be. Today we would call that pandering. When he, was appealing to, when he was appealing to his audiences in the Northeast, what he typically often found is that this was an individual that would uh, highlight the fact of his Catholic belief. He would, he would be called by the Boston Globe as the white knight of Catholic brothers and sisters. This was an individual that would use his family, he channeled his family to be able to create these parties uh, uh, in hotel ballrooms that were very enticing. And what he would do is that he would have he would have individuals, women primarily, that weren't working at that time in 1960, they would go to these ballrooms and they would dress up, dress to the nines as we would say. They would dress up and, and, and they would feel very distinguished, they would feel important, but they would be stuffing envelopes, helping to be able to get out campaign literature. And for the fact that they would do that for the the Kennedy campaign, he in turn would come and visit them at the end of the day. Very transactional in nature. That's how he appealed to individuals within the Northeast. That's how he appealed to his Catholic um, constituency. But it was very different, as we're very keenly aware here in the Dallas area, here in the Texas area, how we saw Kennedy, right? What, what we saw from Kennedy wasn't someone that was transacting by, by being the white knight, by being the individuals that was the favorite son. What we saw from Kennedy is what happened in that infamous crystal ballroom in Houston, Texas in 1960. He was the individual that would come and he would say, he would say that I don't speak for the Catholic Church, the Catholic Church doesn't speak for me. If, if, I, if my conscience is choosing to be broken when I'm serving in office, then I in turn myself will resign from the office. He was trying to separate himself out trying to show that his Catholic faith wouldn't interfere with the idea of being the president of the United States of America. A very different type of transaction was happening during that time. It wasn't playing upon his Catholic beliefs, but rather it was hiding his Catholic beliefs. But what happened? what's interestingly enough though remember that he had this infamous gathering where he made these famous words in houston texas at this cathedral but here's the fascinating thing y'all appreciate this this would make for prime TikToks, okay okay so this was before this was before social media okay so what he did though is that he was going to have this meeting with protestant and baptist ministers down in houston and he was going to tell them like i said The the Vatican isn't coming to D.C., D.C.'s not going to the Vatican, creating a separation. But here's what's so fascinating. He was going to videotape this, and not only was he going to record this, but he was going to have, it says, quote, the nastiest and meanest Protestant members on the front row, so that when they recorded it, they could send it back to highly Catholic audiences to see the mean mugs on the faces of the Protestant members. I don't know about y'all, but whenever I see one of my friends in a bind, what do you do? You stand up, don't you? You're like, oh, not so fast, that's my guy, I'm going to stand up for him. And that's exactly what happened. And it, it, it excited a Catholic base even as, it, even as he was sharing with them, I'm not speaking for the Catholic Church, the Catholic Church isn't speaking for me. Isn't that fascinating? But then this raises a really important question because after all of that, what we see here is we see two very flawed understandings of how the, the biblical narrative would ask us to engage in the public square. Jesus didn't call us to go and take our light into DC and then put it underneath a bushel. He didn't call us to use our light in order, that we can get a he- in order that we can get some food, a transactional nature. Jesus had a radically different understanding of what it meant to engage in the public square. You see, there's a guy named Os Guinness. I'm sure some of you have maybe read one of his most famous books. It's called um, The Call. Right? Oskins has this book called The Call and he, said, and he outlines three different ways that we can, that we can falter when we're in, engaging with the political square with our Christian faith. The first is the politicalization of it. It's saying, you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back, but we'll make it in the name of religion. Very transactional. That's not what Jesus would intend, right? Then the second thing is the privatization, right? So you get the politicalization with saying, I'm gonna scratch your back, you're gonna scratch my back all in the name of the religion. The the privatization is going to be, I'm not letting the left hand know what the right hand is doing. I'm I'm keeping my faith private. I'm lighting my light, but putting it underneath a bushel. It's not doing anything. The salt loses its flavor. So then you've got the politicalization, you got the privatization, and then you get what's called the pillarization. I'll go to church on Sunday, but I'm not gonna do anything about it on Monday, right? It doesn't really impact what I'm doing. I'll go to church, I'll go through the motions, but my church, church isn't gonna impact the way that I live. So then that question causes me to question, what does it look like to engage in the p- political square right now? What does it look like to be an individual as a Christian that feels compelled by God to share the good news of Jesus and to exhibit the ways of Jesus? What does that look like? Well, I would say that there's, it starts back in Matthew 22. It's this crazy story. Jesus is inter- interacting with these in- individuals that are trying to trap um, Jesus. Literally, it says spies. They're spies trying to trap Jesus. And what happens? These spies are trying to trap Jesus, and they they offer up Jesus this little coin, this little denarius of the day. And they say, Jesus, with this denarius, uh, should you pay a tax to Caesar or not? What's fascinating here is that there's these two competing factions that have teamed up together. It's kind of similar to if you see an A&M, Aggie, and a Longhorn walking side by side. You're like, what's going on here? It's like Slytherin and and Hufflepuff walking side by side. Something's something's not right here, right? It's these two opposing factions that you're like, what are these two people doing? It's Taylor Swift and anybody else, for that matter, right? just doesn't mix very well. But for some strange reason, the Pharisees and and, uh, and and the Herodians are coming together. Very unlikely match. are coming together to try to trap Jesus. And they're asking him, should we pay taxes or shouldn't we? So one, that's already going to sting your eye. Well, here, let me help you understand why it's so interesting that these two people, or, or these two factions are coming together. One, the Pharisees, Pure and simple, they're very pure. They're separated. Literally, Pharisees mean separated ones. They're individuals that would say uh, that, no, we're not going to do anything to do with the government. We're not paying a tax to Caesar. That's the angle that they're looking for right now. They're trying to trap Jesus, and they're trying to get Jesus to say, yes, I'll pay a tax to Caesar so that they can then cast him out. You see, the Pharisees, it wasn't really about the question. Rather, the Pharisees were looking for a reason to hate Jesus. Fascinatingly enough, is the Phariseic spirit not at work today? Where individuals are trying to ask questions to figure out a way to divide you. Isn't it interesting that there are individuals today that ask you a litany of questions to try to figure out from a political perspective where you stand on a spiritual perspective? Count me crazy, but at the end of days, I don't believe Jesus is gonna ask me when I go, go meet him what my stance is on tariffs, what my stance is on our, on our Ukrainian perspective. Jesus is gonna ask me who is Lord? And who he is. But there is this rationale and this thinking today that wants to make a test to divide us and to separate us when God literally sent his son to die for us. There is a Pharisaic spirit that often wants to idolize politics. And the reality is Jesus has come to die for both the left and the right. Jesus loves you because he loves you, not because you align with his beliefs. Uh, there is this um, theory called motive attribution symmetry um, that's come out of Syracuse University. I, I kind of like just saying motive attribution symmetry because it makes me sound smart and I'm from Tennessee and I failed uh, my driver's test. Um, so mat- motive attribution symmetry uh, essentially says it's, it's this new, it's helping us better understand the zeitgeist of today's culture, the temperature of today's culture. And this, and, and this theory is finding that more and more individuals, it's not so much that that we love our positions and beliefs, but we hate the other side, and we think the other side has bad. It's created a divide here in the US that is similar to the Israeli-Palestinian side. Why? Because we're living and moving and operating in a world that is trying to simply divide and trying to put a purity test for what you believe. There's a Pharisee spirit, spirit that comes when individuals try to ask you your political beliefs in order that you can discern their spiritual well-being. The second piece is the, the Pharisees aren't alone. They've got the Hufflepuffs over on the other side. Who are, who are the Hufflepuffs? They're the Herodians. The Herodians are individuals that were simply, uh, that they were always going to be a part of the state. They would pay, they would pay that tax. Why would they pay that tax? Because they recognized it to be true, that they realized what it was like to be on the outs, and that's the last thing they wanna be again. So the Herodians were willing to pay the tax, and they're willing to overlook so much in order to be so close to power. You know, have you ever heard of the phrase, absolute power corrupts absolutely? Have you all heard of that phrase from Lord Acton? You know, sometimes it's, it's but it's been misconstrued for a, lot, for a long time. Do you know what the true meaning of the phrase is? absolute power corrupts absolutely isn't talking about the person that holds power it's talking about the people that are surrounding those that hold the absolute power the rationalizations that we often have to make in order to keep close to those that are in power have you ever been around somebody that's not willing to tell you the truth because they want to continue to be close to you Have you ever heard of what the proverb would say in Proverbs 27, faithful are the wounds and arrows of a friend? I would dare say that there are some individuals today in our political square that are willing to overlook certain issues to stay close to those that are in power. That is the Herodian spirit that is not willing, that is willing to call evil good and good evil, all for the sake of staying close. But you see, Jesus has a different perspective to close this out because I'm already over time. I apologize. What Jesus says is that uh, he says, bring me a denarius. The man doesn't even have money in his pocket. To show his allegiance is not with the Caesar that is on the coin. Jesus says, bring me a coin. And when they bring him a coin, he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they walk away amazed because he recognizes this truth. You want to give honor to whom honor is due, what Paul said in Romans thirteen seven, And Caesar's face is on that coin, but whose face and image is on you. You give Caesar a coin, but you give God your life. God God doesn't need any more political fighters, he needs faithful witnesses, individuals that aren't trying to win arguments but win people. Because the reality of the matter is God Caesar does deserve money because we give honor to whom honor is due. But the reality of the matter is we follow a God that loved us so much that he sent his only begotten son into this world so that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The reality of the matter is God, God cares about your political beliefs but he was willing to die for your political enemies. Because at this very moment right now there are more thoughts of God uh, of you from God than sand on the seashore. Did you know that when you woke up this morning, God was already awake? It says because he neither sleeps nor slumbers, according to Psalm 121. You know, he didn't He didn't sleep nor slumber, but he's keeping your foot from falling right now, it says in Psalm 27. He's not only keeping your foot from falling, he's, he is yearning and begging to hear from you. It says in Proverbs 15, 8, that God delights to hear our prayers. Like I am delighting to get to lunch right now, like you're delighting to get those flapjacks. God delights and yearns to hear from you. He's staying up all night to hear from you. Not only does he want to hear from you, but he wants to hear from you and he wants to provide for you. It says in Philippians 4.19 that he's going to provide for your every need in Christ Jesus our Lord. It says in Psalm 83, he's not withholding any good thing from those that he loves. God died for you. God is in love with you. God's not mad at you because of your political beliefs. He loves you despite your political beliefs. We don't need any more part and warriors, God says, Give Caesar what he's due, but give me what I'm due, which is your life. And he died for it. And he is begging you, begging you, not to retreat, but to engage, but to engage in a new way that has people walking away amazed to the extent that, like Paul, they might be glorifying God because of you. That's pretty neat. How do, we bring, how do we bring steadiness and stability to let, feel like we're jumping out of an airplane? We cling to the rock of all ages, who never lets us fall. Let's pray. God, I love you and I thank you so much for this time. Thank you for the opportunity, Father, uh, to be able to love our neighbors through politics to be able to recognize that you died for both of those on both sides of the aisle. And God, help us. God, we don't want to have a spirit of fear and timidity, but power and strength and self-control. And so, Father, help us to be able to engage in this political world in a way that remembers what the main thing is, which is you. Help us to be able to fall deeply in love with you and to just take note, because people you died for that you love, that need to see your love through us. Help us not to get lost in that, but help us
0: to fall deeper in love with you. In your name I pray, amen. Thank you once again for listening to the Criswell Chapel podcast. Please make sure to visit criswell.edu to learn more about Criswell College. We hope that you will join us again soon. God bless you.